back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Well, that plan didn't work out. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, it's time for Keeping Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Tuesday, the 18th day of October. Like I said a moment ago, sometimes the best laid plans don't work out the way that you see them. Because, you know, my plan today was with the fact that originally scheduled the Yankees-Guardians uh, series, Game 5, was supposed to take place on Monday night. And as you guys know, normally I do the podcast on Monday afternoons. I'm like, why am I going to do the podcast on either Monday morning or Monday afternoon before Game 5 even takes place? So I'm like, all right, I'll push it off a day, do some things that I need to take care of. And what do you know? Last night gets rained out. Last night gets postponed to Tuesday afternoon. And as annoyed as I was, you know, sitting there for three hours from about what quarter to seven when they originally announced that this game was not going to start on time to about quarter to 10 when they made the official announcement that the game would be postponed and instead take place at 4.07 on Tuesday afternoon. As annoyed as I was about that and the fact that we were getting no clear answers from Major League Baseball or the Yankees, the Yankees weren't putting anything out on their Twitter account, although when it comes to a postseason game, this kind of stuff is out of their control. It's in control of Major League Baseball's front office and the umpires while they're in constant contact with the Yankees and the Guardians. The two teams really are at a loss like the rest of us. It would have been bet, um, better for all of us if we had some kind of clarification, some kind of communication as the night went on. But as annoyed as I was, I can only imagine how the fans at Yankee Stadium last night felt because you pay for parking you go in there especially if you're you know a parent you got kids young kids you're in there for three hours your kids unless they're you know a teenager they're probably wondering hey mom dad what's going on can we get something to eat you know bored out of their damn minds waiting for what they hope is a baseball game. You go there, you spend money on parking, uh, spend money on uh, food there, only to find out at around quarter to 10 that this 
decisive game is not taking place last night. And that's where, you know, the Yankees kind of screwed their fans because it doesn't sound like they're getting any kind of voucher, any kind of compensation for the hell that you had to go through last night if you were a fan attending what you thought was going to be this baseball game. A game that, you know, now with it being pushed to today, the Yankees get to change up their pitching plans a little bit. Originally, you were going to have Jamison Tyon as starter or opener, whatever role you were considering him. Now you go to Nestor Cortez on three days rest. And in all likelihood, he was going to pitch at some point last night anyway, likely as a weapon out of the bullpen. But now at least you'll get more of Nestor than you would have gotten uh, yesterday. And I will you know, live and die on this season with Nestor pitching this, the game for this franchise's entire year rather than having it in the hands of Jamison Tyon, who was involved in one of a few curious, you know, rather befuddling decisions that Aaron Boone and the the Yankees made during this series. Because what people forget, and, you know, I see this on social media all the time, during games with how much of a reactionary society we are these days with how with Twitter and Instagram and Facebook with just the click of a button, you can have an instant reaction to anything going on in sports, entertainment, politics, any walk of life as it's happening right then and there. So of course, you know, Yankee fans are as passionate but as overreactionary as any fan base in all of sports. So, you know, every move, every move that doesn't work, oh, Boone's got to be fired, Boone's got to go. If we lose this series, this is the last uh, game Boone should manage as uh, the Yankee skipper. There's got to be changes. What would George do? A mindset that we've all got to, quite frankly, move on from. But what people forget is all of these decisions are not Aaron Boone's decisions. Yes, he's the manager of this team by title. But you have an entire staff of analytics guys that are there at these games every game. At least two, three of them. That essentially, it's like handing Aaron Boone a script before the game. And he you know, makes the moves, makes the decisions based on what he feels best from the information those guys uh, give him. That's why, you know, after some of these losses, sometimes if I were the owner of the New York Yankees, when there's a questionable move made, a questionable decision made, I'd walk into the press room be like, no, no, Aaron, you're not answering this. And come walking in with one of these analytic geeks by the back collar of his shirt and throw him to the walls. These guys never have to answer for some of their crap. And you've seen a lot of crap, even for a series that sits here 
a series that, you know, three hours after I get done recording this, will kick off at 4.07 Eastern time in uh, the Bronx. A series that by the time I post this podcast, probably around 8 o'clock on Tuesday night, we will know whether or not the Yankees or the Guardians are going on to play the Houston Astros tomorrow in game one of the ALCS. And, you know, that's where, you know, baseball flat out dropped the ball here. The the way they scheduled this, I, I still don't get the scheduling for this first round. Why you had to have a day off between games one and two on the American League side of things when you already had a day off after game three, and then you had to play three in a row for game five. I get I get the idea that you didn't want the National League side, except especially the Braves uh Phillies series, to be an afternoon game every day. Then just start the NL series the day before the American League series. Start them on Tuesday and start the American League series on Wednesday like you are doing with the NL and ALCS. You have the NLCS game started tonight while the ALCS gets started tomorrow in Houston, as I said before. It really, you know, a lot of the scheduling made no sense, but someone with an extremely high, a way too high a pay grade thought that this was a bright idea to do in uh, this uh, situation. But to get back to the Yankees, there's going to be, if they lose this series, there's going to be a lot of things you look back on and say, what the hell were they thinking? Now, the, the one thing you won't be able to criticize is Garrett Cole, all right? All of this idea that Garrett Cole is not an ace, I think it's been thrown out the window because his two starts this year, well, you never forget, well, it never comes off the, the record books what happened in the wild card game last year. Now you move on and you think about, Oh, this guy can pitch in big games. We saw it two years ago in the pandemic postseason. He pitched on three days rest in game five against the Rays and pitched well. You know, it, it wasn't because of his pitching they lost that game and that series. It was because of the fact that the Yankees couldn't score runs and that they made stupid moves in the games leading up to uh, that decisive game five. But you look at some of the things that the Yankees have done here. Will it be up until you know game two, continuing this ridiculous idea that Aaron Judge should be the leadoff guy? And I get it. They wanted to do that as he was on that home run chase, trying to get to 62 so he could get at least one more at bat every game. But watching him these last several weeks, it clearly got him out of his swing of things. It clearly got him out of the mojo that he had going all season long. And yes, you're dealing with injuries. No LeMahieu, no Benintendi, probably your two best options as your leadoff hitter. But there were other guys, guys that 
know, not as fast on the base paths, not as good as base runners as them, that have good enough on-base percentages that you could have justified not putting the most feared slugger in the sport right now as your leadoff hitter. Whether you wanted to go with Anthony Rizzo against right-handers and then against lefties, you go with Gleyber Torres or maybe even go with Harrison Bader, who I got to admit, I've been completely wrong about Harrison Bader. I thought he was going to be the second coming of Brett Gardner when, in fact, he looks like a guy that I want playing for this team for the at least the next five or six years. He's been a rock star so far in this series and picking up at the bottom of the order where it has been kind of a black hole for the last month. I mean, you look at this this team offensively, quite frankly, they're lucky that we're sitting here 2-2. They're lucky that they're going up against a Guardians team that doesn't score a lot of runs, that does not have a lot of firepower to it. Because, you know, outside of uh, the home run on Saturday night, Aaron Judge has done nothing. And please, he should still win the MVP. But all of those fans that were at Yankee Stadium booing him on Friday after striking out again are out of their damn minds because we would not be sitting here talking about the Yankees as a playoff team without Aaron Judge. He carried this team for most of the summer. But you look around him. Gleyber Torres has not hit much. Giancarlo Stanton's done nothing out of outside of the home run on Friday afternoon, a game that offensively the Yankees did nothing during. Oswaldo Cabrera has done zero outside of his uh, home run on Saturday. You know, Harrison Bader and Anthony Rizzo have really picked up the slack for what has been a quiet Yankees lineup. And, you know, one of the big problems I had with uh, some of the decision-making was the roster construction coming into this series. You're allowed to change the rosters up series by series. And, you know, maybe tonight on social media, I'll give you some thoughts on changes if they get past tonight. But how the hell do you not have Oswald Peraza on this roster? That's a rhetorical question. I can answer it for you. This is another example of the Yankees not just trying to be the smartest guy in the room, but caring way too much about the emotions and the feelings of a player. Because let's face it, if you've watched this team all year long, you know that Isaiah Kanafalefa's defense has sucked at shortstop. I don't care what the analytics tell you. I don't care what the fielding percentage or how many errors that he officially has on the stat books. He is not a good defensive shortstop. And they did, they did not put Oswald Peraza on this roster just because they didn't want... Kind of Falefa, who's supposed to be a placeholder for when one of their young shortstops is ready to go. They did not put him on this roster because they did not want Kind of Falefa looking over his shoulder, wondering if he's getting benched along the way. Well, hey, guess what? It took you three games into this postseason and you've already benched Isaiah Kind of Falefa. 
You made the change, moved uh, Oswaldo Cabrera in from the outfield and put him at shortstop and put that stiff Aaron Hicks out in left field. When is there some something in his contract that says Aaron Hicks has to be on the playoff roster? Aaron Hicks this year has been what Brett Gardner was the previous two years. Offered nothing in positive contributions to this team and is just around because for some reason, Brian Cashman felt it was right to give him $10 million per year three years ago. If it were up to me, you, you want to have the best defensive unit out there. Cabrera has more than held his own at, in left field. I would have put Peraza on this roster and he would have been my starting shortstop, especially with the fact that he was hitting when he got playing time in the final couple of weeks of the regular season. I would have thrown the kid right to the fire and hopefully he provided a spark at the bottom of the order. But all of these games have been winnable for the Yankees. All of these games have been right there at the end for the Yankees to win. But it's been questionable usage of the bullpen and bullpen failures that have hurt them. You know, along with you know not scoring enough runs. I mean, you know, leaving a small army on base in game two, and then only getting five total team hits in game three eventually came back to bite them, especially when you know the bullpen was rock solid for the most part in game two until you got to extra innings. And oh, lo and behold, we're going to go to Jameson Tyon for his first ever career relief appearance in a postseason game. This is a guy that he was calling up friends around the league wondering how do you warm up for bullpen appearances. As of last week. And why would you go to him before you went to Clark Schmidt? When Clark Schmidt has been a reliever on this team for a large majority of the year. Has had success in that role. When after like three or four hitters after Tyon spit the bit. You went to Schmidt anyway. No, I know. Tyon was unlucky. There was a lot of blue pits against him. But still, it, it made no sense whatsoever. And then the next night, you compound things with deciding, all right, we're going to pitch Peralta into the ninth inning. And then you go to Schmidt instead of Holmes. Whether it was you really thought something was wrong with Holmes that he couldn't pitch in that game or uh, Holmes's stop soft-spoken attitude and way as a person didn't leave you much confidence that he was ready to pitch in back-to-back days. Eventually, you know, Schmidt left the pitch up that uh, was too hittable and you're looking at a situation where Gonzalez uh, drove in the go-ahead run in that ninth inning so back-to-back days, you had a uh, porous bullpen uh, calls by Boone and the nerds. And listen, I get it. They're without a lot of guys in, in this bullpen. 
you're without Scott Effenross, who we found out mere hours before the start of this series, he needs Tommy John surgery. Who knows when we ever see him again? Likely, what, 2024? You've been without Chad Green most of the year, without Michael King since the middle of the summer. Ron Marinaccio went down uh, in the final week of the season. Who knows if he's available, if there is a next round for the Yankees. And then, of course, there is the nonsense of a Roldis Chapman going AWOL that has really hurt and contaminated this team. And I don't care if they advance past uh, tonight. There is still no way in hell this man ever pitches for the Yankees again. All the way around, a lot of aggravation over these first four games. But that aggravation can be wiped away today. That aggravation can go away today. If Nestor Cortez gives, he's going to give you everything he has because this guy has a lot of toughness, a lot of grit to him. He's been He's been through and seen it all in his still young baseball career because this is a guy no one believed in. No one thought was not just a major league starting pitcher, but even a a big league pitcher to begin with. People thought he was a journeyman. People thought that he was just kind of a guy that was going to travel around the sport and be you know one of those guys that jumped around for from five or six different teams until he's you know, in his mid-30s and collects a good enough pension. Now, this year has shown that he looks like someone that could be not just a keeper for this team going forward, but is going to have a relevant career going forward. I'm not saying he's going to pitch to a Cy Young level, but he's someone that you're going to get the the best effort out of each and every single time. And it's not going to be a solo effort from him in this game. It, being on three days rest for the first time in his life, in all likelihood, it's going to take a lot more than that. You're going to see Jonathan Luizaga. You're going to see Wandy Peralta. You're going to see Clay Holmes. You may even see the likes of a Domingo Herman, who I've been surprised that he hasn't been seen in this postseason, considering he's got more experience as a relief pitcher than Jamison Tyon does. He's hell, he's even done it this year pitching out of the bullpen. And you know, you're going to have to get a lead early because the Guardians have a full advantage over the Yankees when it comes to the bullpen. Their best three guys, Trevor Steffen, uh Karachek, and Emmanuel Classe they haven't pitched since, what, Saturday? And all of those guys are capable of pit- giving you, you know, two innings a pop. All of those guys, you know, if they get um, three, inning, three, four innings out of their starter today, they could carry them the rest of the way. They could carry them to the finish line. So you're the Yankees. It is extremely important that you have a lead before Terry Francona can unleash those guys. This offense needs to wake the hell up. Not just judge all of these guys. You need a you can't just be going into this game thinking that you're gonna be carried by Rizzo and Bader again. At some point, even those guys, as good as they've been in this series, are going to go cold. The big boys 
need to step up. Otherwise, we're looking at a very disappointing end to what was supposed to be a very promising year, a very big year, a year where you were thinking and expecting as of late June, early July, that this was the year that number 28 was coming to the Bronx. And even with expectations being somewhat tempered with a porous summer, when you're the Yankees, anything less than a championship, especially when you win 99 games, is an extreme disappointing way to end your year. All right, a lot to get to for the rest of the podcast. You know, try to get more positive vibes because there were a lot of good things that happened this week, a lot of things that made me smile. So, we're, and I'm always harped upon by certain people I know to smile, to uh, have a positive outlook on things. And so we're going to get to those in just a minute. Give you some thoughts on what went on in the NFL this week. Uh, Some teams that are struggling and that should be concerned. Continued positive vibes in this area when it comes to NFL play. And something that you know, may change the NFL that I'm 100% down for. So a lot to get to over the next about 35, 40 minutes or so here. And as this time, as I tell you each and every single week, please sit back, relax, help put your feet up if you feel like it. And continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. There are times that the things that go on off the field in the NFL leave me outright disgusted, you know, sick to my stomach, kind of like how I felt with the Tua Tagovola situation a couple weeks ago, how they handled his uh, concussion. And a myriad of things along the way, such as how they suspend certain players, like the Deshaun Watson situation, which may be rearing its ugly head once again. But there was an off-the-field story that kind of brought a smile to my face in the, the last week. And it's rare that I say this about this person because, quite frankly, Daniel Snyder outright disgusts me. I think he's a disgrace as a human being, a disgrace as the owner of the Washington Commanders, especially when you look at some of the things that have gone on there in the 23 years he's been an owner. You have things such as the uh, organization culture with uh, office workers and cheerleaders who claim to have been sexually harassed and discriminated against by Snyder and um other male executives, colleagues, and players of the team in the last 15 years. That's why there's been this uh, long investigation into it, even leading so much so that he's had to voluntarily step aside and 
allow his uh, wife to handle uh, the, running the team's day-to-day operations, which, quite frankly, we know it just means he's telling her what to do. And I don't mean to be you know, a sexist pig with it, but when you hand the day-to-day runnings of an operation off to family members, there's no way you're not talking about it at dinner. You're not saying, hey, honey, th- this is the direction I feel that we should go to. Because I, And I'm just saying that because I'm not sure how involved his wife, Tanya, actually was with the commanders before all of this uh, blew up, all of this really got started. Then you, you also had reports of how he was intentionally reporting uh, uh, different ticket sales to the NFL and the IRS in order to have to only pay a smaller share of uh, the uh, visiting team's fund, allowing him to keep more ticket revenues and uh, potentially jacking up the prices for uh, non-season ticket holders. Just ridiculous some of the things that this guy has done. But now he's, you know, doing something that I like. Because, as we all know, he should be kicked out of the NFL. He should not be owning this team. He should, you could probably find better representation for him or for this organization than Daniel Snyder. Because he's been kicking his feet through the mud for years on getting a new stadium there when they clearly need it. We saw how long it took him to finally give in on changing the franchise's name from Redskins to Commanders. Well, you would think all of the owners want him out, or a majority of the owners want him out. What You're thinking, what's taking so long? Why has he not been kicked out? Well, it's because he may know where all the bodies are buried. Because there was a report that came out last week from ESPN uh, via Don Van Nata Jr., Seth Wickersham, and Tisha Thompson reporting that Daniel Snyder claims to have dirt on NFL owners and the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, saying that he may have targeted at least six owners in the league including Jerry Jones, who was once thought to be his mentor and one of his biggest supporters, even going as far as saying that Snyder told a confidant that he has a file on Jones. And while several owners off the record, because Roger Goodell will not allow them to speak publicly on the matter, have said that he's just saying this because he's backed into a corner here and that it's a last-ditch effort to hold on to his team. I really hope that at these meetings that the owners are having today that they begin the process of kicking this guy out because I would love it if all of a sudden he went public on some things, some things that we probably should either should or shouldn't have known about. And that leads to the ousting of a few more owners. I've always said that the league would be a better place for the fans if Jerry Jones was no longer involved. I mean, Jerry Jones played a big part in that new stadium opening in uh, 
California for uh, the, the two LA teams. And while it's good to have the NFL back in the Los Angeles market, it screwed the fans of San Diego. Because let's face it, LA, yes, it's one of the biggest markets in, in the sport, but it doesn't have the vibe of an NFL town. It's a college town. You, you see bigger, more passionate crowds for USC and UL, UCLA games than you do Rams games. Rams games, it's about 50-50. Hell, Chargers, they barely have a fan base there. Last night, it was almost 60-40 Bronco fans in that building. The San Diego fans were the ones that really cared about that team. Plus, I'm tired of seeing Jerry talk after every single Cowboy game. And didn't hear his comments the other night. Didn't hear him uh, bringing up any quarterback controversy uh, on Sunday night. But I would really love if Schneider got to go public. Got to throw all this dirt out there that he hired public investigators or private investigators to dig up on these owners. Because... Like I said, the sport would be a better place if he got rid of Jerry Jones. If you got rid of some of these other pile of crap owners who, let's face it, can you think of one thing that these owners have done in recent years that has been in the best interest of us, the fans? Taking Thursday Night Football off the NFL network and putting it on a streaming service not the best interest of a fan because unless you're living in that market, unless you have Amazon Prime, you ain't seeing the game. And most of these games have been shitty this year anyway. Or how about you know how they do these games ac- across the world? Some of these games in London. You think you really think fans in London, by a large part, give a damn about the NFL? No, they care about. European soccer, right? You're screwing over certain fan bases. Like the Green Bay Packers lost a home game uh, last week. You know, you think that they would have been more jacked up, more geared up to go against the Giants if they were playing at Lambeau rather than playing across the pond in London? Or the fact that you know, we continue to give them the Jacksonville Jaguars as an international team. Like it, some of the, I've said it for a while. I'll continue to say it. some of these owners just need to go. the The core group that Jerry Jones leads around him and all of his minions that will say to your face they give a damn about you, but really don't care. The league will be a better place. Once they're no longer part of it. Now, what is a good thing, what is a really great thing, is the fact that we are sitting here. It is two weeks away from Halloween. Six games into this season. And both New York City football teams are relevant. Both New York City NFL teams are sitting here with positive vibes looking at seasons where they can be optimistic for the first time in years. I mean, for the Giants, you're talking first time since the Tom Coughlin 
era. And for the Jets, damn, I was barely old enough to drink the last time they were in the playoffs. But you look at what's gone on this first six weeks of the season. What the Giants have done is astounding. And it goes to show how having a good coach, having a coach that has a head on his shoulder and not his head up his ass like Joe Judge and Pat Shermer, what it can do for a team. And I will continue going back to this. What Brian Dayball did in week one when he got up in Daniel Jones's grill, wasn't screaming his head off at him, wasn't turning bright red cursing at him, but held him accountable for throwing that second half interception. I think was a big key in what we're seeing out of the Giants. That and going for the two-point conversion late in that game to win it rather than going to overtime. It has changed seemingly overnight the entire vibe of this team because, quite frankly, you look at the Giants roster-wise, I don't think they're that good talent-wise. You have a, a an all-world running back in Saquon Barkley, but you have a young quarterback in Daniel Jones that we still don't know what he is. A defense that's really good, but the wide receiver position, you look around half the time after outside of Slayton, and you're looking at him like, who the hell are these guys? Because uh, Kenny Galladay was a waste of a signing. Uh, Shepard, uh, we um, may never see him again. And Kadarius Toney, who knows what his mindset is if he's actually going to play football or not, or if he's more concentrated on his post-playing football career. But the Giants, the you know, it seems like more weeks than not, they are viewed as an underdog, viewed as you know the an us against the world kind of thing. And they keep coming out surprising you. After a year where they went four and thirteen last year, we sit here at five and with them at five and one after a win against the Ravens on Sunday. A win that, let's face it, the Ravens, their offense gave this game away. Their their offense just threw this away after running the football down the Giants' throats for most of this game and being seemingly mistake-free, they wait till the final three or four minutes to start turning the ball over left and right, whether it be uh, Lamar's interception uh, thrown to Julian Love with about three minutes ago that gave the Giants at least life, gave them a shot. Then when you thought, oh, Daniel Jones blew it again with another interception, Marcus Peters gets called for uh, defensive pass interference. It gets called back, and one play later, they're scoring the go-ahead touchdown, and they get Lamar to make another mistake right after that with uh, the strip sack and recovery uh, by Kathan Thibodeau. I mean, this team, as like I said, I don't think they're bereft or full of uh, a lot of good offensive talent, but they're an interesting watch every week. You you can't rule them dead until the clock hits triple zero and uh, they're trailing because it, we've seen them multiple times in these first six weeks of the season be trailing by double digits, whether at halftime or at some point in the second half, 
and they just keep fighting. They just keep coming back. And that's what you want to see out of uh, your football team when you're trying to build a program, trying to build, you know, the word's thrown around a lot here, but it's something the Giants haven't had in a long time. Have a culture, have a a winning mindset. And you're, you know, you're seeing that same thing right across the stadium with the New York Jets. Our Jets, who, you know, I'm pinching myself every Sunday. Three wins in a row and going into Lambeau on Sunday and dominating the Packers, especially in that second half. I know it wasn't the prettiest thing offensively in the world to watch, but the Jets were the better team on Sunday. The Jets controlled this game on Sunday and just waited for the Packers to make their mistakes. I mean, between Quinn and Williams, who on both sides of the ball was the most dominant player for either team on Sunday, you know, left and right with uh, blocking a field goal early, how much he was up in Rodgers' face all game long. And his dominance allowed other guys you know, to get one-on-one matchups and, and feel confident. And it does help when you have a group of seven to eight defensive linemen where you can rotate Quinn and Williams out, give him a breather for a play or two, and you really didn't miss much. Yeah, you didn't have someone that was the physical force that uh, Q was, but everybody seemed to step up and do their job. I mean, we finally saw Vinnie Curry play for this team in the limited time that they were out there, uh, Mike Clemens and uh, uh, Nathan Shepard uh, did the job. And remember, they were without their one of their three first-round draft picks in Jermaine Johnson on Sunday. He was dealing with a, an ankle issue. But you love the fact that this defense dominated uh, the, the Packers. While the offense wasn't pretty, you had, you know, everybody, you know, stay within themselves. They weren't just trying to chuck it down the field all all day. They actually mixed in some good gadget plays, including uh, the reverse with Berrios, where that that is another play that popped out to me, not just because it scored a touchdown, but look what happened in, in that play. Dwayne Brown going down the field and putting a shoulder down. This is a guy... He's 37 years old. He's made his money in this sport. He got a two-year, $20 million contract. He could have very easily taken the shoulder surgery, but done for the year. But no, he fought his way back and is playing for this team and showing the young guys here, hey, this is how you go about it as a pro. No, I'm not just in it for the money. I'm in it for the love of the game, riding and dying with this team, having the passion uh, to be on an NFL field and be in a locker room with 52 other uh, men trying for one goal altogether. That, That kind of stuff is infectious. That kind of stuff can rub off on teammates. And he has just been incredible uh, in how he's come back here and helped solidify the bookends of that offensive line now with the the continued versatility of AVT, him playing right tackle, Dwayne Brown uh, 
playing left tackle. Hopefully they get George Font back at some point and you can move AVT back in at right guard. But you know, right now you look at this Jets team and you know, Zach Wilson, while he isn't making mistakes, he hasn't you know, he hasn't played great yet in his the games he's been back, but they're still winning football games. They're still finding a way these last three weeks to get the job done. And We'll see if they can continue it uh, this coming Sunday when they play the Denver Broncos, who have been a snorefest to watch so far this season. And I'll get more into that in just a few minutes because you look around this sport right now, people, there's some teams that have got to be concerned. So that's something to chew on here uh, during this quick break, something to think about. And that I'm going to talk about when we come back. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. In the last couple of days, no matter where you turn, TV, radio, podcasts, any form of media, even across social media, You've started to see and hear expectations and optimism rise for both the Jets and Giants based off of their excellent starts to this season. Surprising excellent starts to this season. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say excellent starts because... You know, the Giants have won more games than they did last year. The Jets have won as many games as they did last year. And you had the likes of Brady Quinn, who has been surprisingly quiet and hidden across uh, the media world, saying that the Jets' season would be done by Halloween. You know, where are you, Brady Quinn? We're still looking for you. You have to ask yourselves, which one of these starts is more sustainable? Which one of these starts is more likely to continue. Now, you could be the optimistic one, and you could say, hey, look around the sport right now. Not a lot of teams are grabbing uh, the, the brass ring by a hold and are taking control of the season. You're seeing a lot of mediocre, a lot of averageness, if that's a word, 
out of the NFL right now. And it's allowed the door to creep open for teams that we had no expectations for this coming season to walk right through. I mean, you look at it outside of the Philadelphia Eagles right now. Who do you really consider that great team? Who do you really consider that next team? Because, you know, I watched the Eagles the other night, and as talented as they are, as good as they are on both sides of the football, and as well as the pieces that they have fit the identity of what Nick Seriani is preaching with that team, I don't look at them and say, oh, they overwhelm talent-wise every single team they're playing. I mean, you look at the other side of the field on Sunday, if the Cowboys had had Dak Prescott in that second half of the game, they probably win the game. The Eagles could not run the football as efficiently in the second half once Lane Johnson went down uh, for concussion protocol. But they were, you know, the Eagles were helped out by the fact that they got off to such a quick start and that the Cowboys do everything that they don't. The Cowboys have a an idiot as their head coach in, in Mike McCarthy, who doesn't know when is the right time to challenge a play. I mean, C.D. Lamb, is his arm was clearly across the line to gain for a first down before the knee hit. That should have been a first down. And instead, you're deciding to go for it on a fourth and one, and you had a night where Cooper Rush turned back into Cooper Rush because the Eagles made him try to be the reason uh, the, the Cowboys win the game. After having no interceptions first you know, four games he played and just being along for a nice cozy ride um, based on that ground game and defense, he was um, able to turn right back into who he th- we thought he was, a guy that should be holding a clipboard. So between Mike McCarthy's stupidity, Cooper Rush turning the football over left and right, and the fact that the Cowboys continue to be completely undisciplined um, all the way around. They had five times the amount of penalties that the Eagles had, at times coming in crucial situations on third and fourth in short uh, situations. Now, the Eagles get to go into their bye week of riding high undefeated, while the Cowboys are left wondering, can Dak help us turn this around in week seven? And listen, anybody that thought that you know, this was a quarterback controversy, I think you got that out of your system watching Cooper Rush. But no, like I said, outside the Eagles, who do you look at in the NFC and really say, oh, the Giants can't hold serve and stay with? Because the Giants have the second-best record in the NFC. They're right there with the Minnesota Vikings. And as well as the Vikings have played, as much as I like the weapons they have on that offense with Jefferson, with Adam Thielen, with with Cook, with uh, Madison as your running backs, still don't trust Kirk Cousins in the big moment. They took advantage of a Dolphins team that was on to their third option at quarterback 
on Sunday that a quarterback in Bridgewater that was turning the football over uh, left and right and really have not played any one of true consequence so far this season. Yeah, they beat Green Bay earlier in the year, but how great of a win does that seem now? When the fact that as happy as I am with the way my Jets are playing, the Jets went into Lambeau and beat the Packers. It didn't just beat the Packers, kicked their ass. And you're looking at some of these teams in the NFC that we thought were clear contenders, and there's a lot of problems with them. The two mo- um, ones the most are the Packers and the Buccaneers. The Packers, who seemingly don't know who they are offensively, they're still trying to play offense like uh, Devontae Adams is coming back one of these weeks. And hate to tell you, He's a Las Vegas Raider now. And you could have had him. You could have kept him. He was yours. But you decided to trade him. And now you got your $50 million quarterback pissed off at you. And Rodgers is looking around. He's trying to make the best of what is a bad situation there with weapons that don't jump off the page at you. An offensive line that was totally overwhelmed on Sunday and a head coach that I'm I'm not quite sure what he's good at. A head coach in Matt LaFleur where you look at and say he's kind of just rode the coattails of Aaron Rodgers these last couple of years. There's, you don't walk away from Matt LaFleur being your head coach feeling really inspired. You don't walk away and say, you know what? I believe in what that guy is trying to install in this team. He's just saying, all right, Aaron, go out there and make it up as you go along. Because his whatever his offensive approach is with this team clearly is not working. And then you got the Bucs who now we, we sit here, they've lost three of their last four, and their offense looks like a mess. They can't score in the red zone. Brady's had one touchdown or less in the last five games. And I don't know whether it's father time catching up with Tom or, no, I I don't want to go here, but we know, or at least we think we know, we hear all the stories. We see what's going on in his personal life. And you see how passionate he was yelling at his teammates on of the sidelines the other day, and they could say nothing about it because most other quarterbacks in the league, they look at them and say, hey, how are you yelling at us when you're taking a mental health day uh, on Wednesdays and you're going to a a wedding for your former team's owner on Friday night? But it's Tom freaking Brady. He's a seven-time champion. He's the GOAT. He's earned the right to talk to teammates like that and he takes accountability after the game. He He's not just saying we all have to play better, but he's bringing himself up in the mix there saying, I have to play better. I have to do better. So now all the way around, you you look at the Bucks and you wonder what direction they're going in. And that's why I look at it and I say the what the Giants are doing is more sustainable than the Jets because you know you don't have the powers in the NFC like we thought there was going to be. In the AFC, we know who the top two dogs are. We know who 
the teams to beat are. That's the Bills and the Chiefs. And the Bills took a big step forward on Sunday in being that team. Being that team that you are saying the AFC is running through us. Mahomes and Allen stared each other down for three hours, went to war for three hours. I mean, this felt like a Super Bowl matchup. This felt like what Brady and Manning used to be. They stared each other down for uh, three hours, and Allen got Mahomes to blink. Allen didn't make the mistakes that Mahomes was making late in uh, this game, and the you know, the Bills were able to survive. And now we're looking at a situation where I've I've said it since the beginning of the year. They were my Super Bowl pick in the beginning of the year. And I feel even more emboldened, even more confident in saying this now. If they have the best record in the AFC at the end of this year, have the one seed, it's a wrap. They're going to the Super Bowl. They'll sit there and wait for whoever's coming into the, from the NFC side of things because nobody is coming in, into uh, Buffalo and beating them in the postseason, especially with how the weather is going to be then, especially with how passionate and um, diehard that fan base is. Unless there's some major catastrophe that happens with the Bills injury-wise, which you knock on wood and hope that doesn't happen. They're going to represent the AFC in the Super Bowl. I don't see anybody, not the Bengals who have started to get their, their act together in recent weeks. Definitely not the Patriots who I'm I'm not even sure who's playing quarterback for them on a week-to-week basis. And Are, are we now at the point where Bailey Zappi has put Mac Jones on the bench? The only difference between the two of these guys, let's face it, is Bailey Zappi was a fourth-round pick and Mac Jones was the 15th overall pick. Other than that, I see, when I watch them play, I don't see any difference. Maybe Zappi's more careful with the football, but there's no true difference in uh, these uh, two guys. So I'm not saying the Giants are a Super Bowl contender. would not lie to you any of you and say that because that'd be a fuel, foolish statement to make. But with how wide open the NFC is, their start to this season, definitely more sustainable to the Jets because as, at some point, Zach Wilson is going to have to win a game for the New York Jets. You're not going to just be able to run the ball and play great defense and win games, you know, 21 to 16 all year long. Games like what happened on Sunday are not going to be uh, happening each and every single week. There's going to be times where you got to put up points. You got to take advantage of the young legs that you have at wide receiver. You got to use these guys: Garrett Wilson, Elijah Moore, who's seemingly disappeared from the participation in this offense the last couple of weeks. Braxton Berrios and the versatility that he provides you. Hell, even continue this idea where you run uh, set plays with both of your young running backs out there. Can't just be, oh, Corey Davis, the one option down the field. At some point, Zach Wilson's going to have to win games for them. And as much as I like him, as much as I think he's the guy going forward, I don't know 
with this offensive line if they can truly sustain that because now people have their antennas up. People have them on their radar. And the Broncos, who were still licking their wounds from losing on Monday Night Football last night, and quite frankly, I don't know what has happened to my guy Russell Wilson since going there because their offense stinks. They're 32nd in scoring. They're in the, the bottom 10 in the, in the league in yards per game and passing yards per game. And even with their defense kicking ass each and every single week, Russ, you know, he'll play one good half and then the second half, you, you think he was never throwing a football in his life. You know, that. The Broncos, even though they're they're favored, they're no longer looking at the Jets as, oh, homecoming week. No longer looking at it as saying, oh, we'll just ride the nostalgia of celebrating uh, John Elway and our Super Bowl champions this coming Sunday. So the, the cute story, the fun story, while I hope it continues, people are aware that the Jets are coming and the Jets are someone that you got to pay attention to each and every single week. And we'll see if they're able to sustain this now that they are no longer just a cute story. All right, going to take one last break. Come back on the other side and close things out with some uh, baseball thoughts. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Remains to be seen how much more of the New York Yankees I'll be talking about for the remainder of this baseball season because three hours from now begins game five of their ALDS series against the Guardians. Do or die, winner moves on to face the Astros, loser goes home for the season. And the Guardians... Even though the youngest team in the sport deserve our respect. They have a great manager, a future Hall of Fame manager, a guy in Jose Ramirez that's going to finish third in the MVP race. Have good pitching. We'll see who's available for them, whether they use Bieber out of the bullpen on three days rest or uh, no, if any of their other starters, uh, I don't know if they'll use Tristan McKenzie, uh, but their bullpen, their main three guys, like I talked about earlier, are going to be all available, all going to be uh, ready to go. And remember, the winner of this, you're not even really going to be able to pop champagne bottles because you got to get right on a plane and fly to Houston for game one tomorrow night. The Astros have been sitting around, ready, waiting after their sweep over the Mariners, who, you know, you know normally over a, when a team gets swept, you want to look at them and, you know, maybe poke fun. You wonder, oh, were they deserving to be in the postseason? This Mariners team deserves a lot of respect for the year they put forward. It's been a long time. Long time since they were in the postseason. I, 
I was in the seventh grade the last time they were in the postseason. Hell, you know, one of the worst moments in this country's history, 9-11, happened around the time that the Mariners were last in the postseason. And yeah, they let Leeds get away in the first two games. They, they could have easily won either of the first two games after beating up on Justin Verlander in game one and their bullpen, which had been great all year long, spitting the bit late, even so much so that uh, uh, they decided to go to Robbie Ray out of the pen to try and close things out. And his disaster of a postseason uh, was just made even worse by giving up the three-run bomb to Jordan Alvarez. That ball might still be traveling. And then you get a great start from Castillo up until the last pitch he threw when he gave up the go-ahead home run against Alvarez, who's just a monster, a beast, and has to have Dodgers and Dodgers fans well, thinking, how could we let this guy get away, trading him uh, years ago just to get reliever Josh Fields, which was a disaster of a trade. I mean, all the air was let out of the bloom for them losing that 18-inning game on Saturday, ending their season. But, hey, they had a great year. They had a phenomenal year. They they had a year where they can walk out of it with their heads held high. Unlike, you know, what you see in the National League side of things where you have two wildcard teams now playing in the NLCS. And listen, these wildcard teams... They deserve our respect. I, I should have given the Phillies a lot more credit than I was giving them. And that they even though they were looking like they were on the verge of blowing a postseason spot in the final couple of weeks of the season. And I'm not exactly impressed with their bullpen now that David Roberts Robertson is out with some kind of injury. They you know took it right to the Atlanta Braves. And what had to help is even though they had the best two starting pitchers in this series, they uh, had just as much firepower as the Braves and their offense shined more so than the Braves. And the, the really only great inning for Atlanta this series was game in game two, that sixth inning, when they uh, drove in three runs against Wheeler with two outs. Other than that, they their offense was non-existent and having to fight from behind the entire series. But you <laughs> look at it, what had to help the Phillies in a weird way was playing the wild card series, not having that time off. Because the Braves' starting pitchers looked rusty. The Braves' starting pitchers, you know, didn't did not seem to be locked in as much as Atlanta, as much as Philadelphia's. Even though they didn't get to use Wheeler and Nola in the first game, they were eventually able to get them in this series, and their bullpen did just enough to hold the Atlanta Braves at bay. I mean, Atlanta was. Awful with runners in scoring position throughout this entire series. And, you know, the death nail for them was uh, the 
inside the park home run by Real Muto on uh, Saturday afternoon. And now, now why we're looking at you know them going up against the San Diego Padres. I mean, the Braves, even though saying, oh, they won 101 games, came all the way back against the uh, Mets. You're not as disappointed if you're a Braves fan today because you were the World Series champions last year. Now, you can take this kind of disappointment coming off of a World Series and and say, all right, we have a chance to be back because all of the young talent on this team is signed through the next decade. It's a harder pill to swallow today if you're a Los Angeles Dodgers fan. And yes, the Dodgers were without their their best pitcher for most of the early part of the year in Walker Buehler, losing him to Tommy John surgery. Did not have the depth in starting pitching that we thought they had in the beginning of the year. And their offense was not able to do much against the San Diego Padres bullpen. I mean, finally, after you know two, three months of pitching like garbage, Josh Hader woke up and realized he's Josh Hader. But you're the Los Angeles Dodgers. You were the best team in the sport all year long. Won 111 games. 14 of 19 against the San Diego Padres. And what do you got to show for it? Absolutely nothing other than winning the National League West. You lose three out of four in that series. Become the first team in MLB history to win 110 plus games and not reach the championship series. That's inexcusable. At the very minimum, when you have that kind of season, you got to get to Game 7 of the World Series. Losing in Game 7 of the World Series is the only way that your season can end without a championship. And you know, there's, you know that the Dodgers, even with as huge a payroll as they have, they're going to do something this offseason. They're not going to just rest on their laurels because – with the amount of talent that they've had in recent years, you can't come away from the Clayton Kershaw era with one title. And they've missed so many opportunities over the years, lost to so many teams that did not deserve to be on the field with them. You now, this Padre team, you know, outmanned them, outslugged them. This Padre team has young talent. This Padre team has young superstars. So they were amongst the teams that have eliminated the the Dodgers in recent years were a worthy opponent. And even though you don't look at the the Padres rotation and say it's overwhelming, those guys those guys can pitch. Those guys have shown guts in big spots. Joe Musgrove, back to back starts in this postseason. No carrying the way for the Padres. You Darvish was great against the Mets, eh, against the Dodgers, but we'll see how he now does against the Phillies. But it, it, it's interesting the, the the diversity you see in this postseason. You have two wildcard teams in the National League side of things, whereas you're going to have two division winners no matter what happens a little later on on the American League side of things. Showing that there is parity in this sport. There is, you know, just get in. You have a shot. Hell, maybe 
going forward, you're not going to see while you want the rest, while you want, you know, to be able to get your starting pitching in line for a division series. Maybe going forward, you're not going to see teams just moan and groan about playing this wild card. Because if the Padres and Phillies can get to a championship series, especially the Padres, who a even with all the talent they have, all the money they've spent, all the trades they've made, are still considered a mid-tier kind of market. If they can get there, anyone's now just going to say, just be competitive. Just get in the big dance and have three great days. Get hot and we can beat anybody. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 for Tuesday, October 18th, 2022. Hope everyone has a great night, especially Yankee fans. Hope you all have a very fun, safe, happy, healthy week ahead of you. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next Monday. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you, I don't want to hear you, I don't want to smell you, not leave. I'll be back.